Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab, Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Natan. Natan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, to whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were fourteen generations, and all from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would bless the reading and hearing of this word that you have inspired. Father, there's truth in it, truth to change our lives. And by the power of your spirit, we pray that that's what would happen this morning. That we would be people of hope because we've been in your word together this morning. So we pray that you'd bless us in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, the very first lines of a story are very important to us. They determine whether we will keep reading or not. If they pique our interest, perhaps we will keep reading the story because we think there's entertainment there or or information or uh, something for us in those words. Some of the famous first lines that have kept us reading are, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. From the tale of two cities. Call me Ishmael from Moby Dick. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. It's from 1984. All children grow up except one. Peter Pan. Fair is foul, and foul is fair. From Macbeth. And so we come to the first page, the first verse, of the very first book of the New Testament that we've just read. And what is here to pique our interest? Why should we keep reading? You know, at first it may not be apparent to us here in the 21st century. In fact, we consider these verses 
less than riveting. Uh, how many have, have you have spent your devotional time reading from the first 17 verses of Matthew? Raise your hand. No, generally we skip over them all together or we skim over them quickly because we're eager to get to verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now that is interesting to us. In one verse, there's scandal. Here is a, a girl that's not married and she's expecting a baby and it's not her fiancé. Here, here in this verse, one verse, there is uh, the, the paranormal. You know, a child who is conceived by the Holy Spirit. But as the first century Jew was reading or hearing these verses, and that's who Matthew wrote for, as we noted last week, he was writing specifically and particularly to the Jews of the first century. They would be drawn immediately into this story by these verses that we've just read. Because as a first century Jew, you had been waiting for 400 years. 400 years to hear something from God, anything. Malachi was their last prophet, the last prophet to get a message from God that he wrote down. And these were the last words of Malachi. It's Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaffed. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like cows from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I'm preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statues and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. These are the last words that the people of Israel had heard from God. Something is coming. A day is coming. An unhappy day for those who are evildoers and do what's wrong, but a day of great joy for those who revere the Lord. A day when the Son of Righteousness is going to rise with healing in its wings. A person is coming. One like the prophet Elijah. Well, when is that day coming? When is that person coming? One year? No, one year came and went after Malachi. No day of the Lord. No prophet. No Messiah. Forty years. Like the number of years they spent wandering in the desert. Well, forty years came and went. No day of the Lord. No prophet. No Messiah. How about seventy years? The number of years they spent in exile in Egypt. Well, seventy years came and went. No day of the Lord. No prophet. No Messiah. No, 400 was the year. Like the number of years God's people spent in slavery in Egypt before God sent Moses to deliver them. Now 400 years, God would send another deliverer. And that's a long time to wait. To put it in perspective, Jamestown, Jamestown, 407 years ago. Can you imagine? 
Waiting that amount of time, that's a different time, a different place. We can't even uh, enter in to what it was like to be in Jamestown. Well, that's how long these people were waiting. Long enough to think that God may not speak to you again. Definitely long enough to believe that God had forgotten his promises or that maybe Malachi misunderstood what God had said and wrote the wrong thing. Maybe the day isn't coming. Maybe the prophet isn't coming. Maybe they should give up until you read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record, a biblos, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Okay, Matthew, now you have my interest. Here is a new book that begins with a brand new person, Jesus. But interestingly enough, this new person, Jesus, wears a very old title, an ancient title, a title of nobility, a title that no one else has ever been able to attach their name because no one else has ever been able to fulfill the office required from the title. And the title is Christ. Jesus is the Christ. And Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. So this, verse 1, chapter 1, is the story of Jesus the Christ. And so Matthew's audience would be listening attentively from the beginning. And if the first words are any indication of what lies ahead, this story is going to be a real page-turner for them. Because it promises that this life of this man called Jesus is going to fulfill the promises that God made. If this story is true, if this story is true, God has not forgotten his promises. If this story is true, maybe the wait is over. We hope so. But here you and I sit, 2014, and what was new for the first century Jew is not new for us. The story that was new for them is, to us, an old, old story. So how do we recapture the excitement of reading or hearing Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, for the very first time? When I was thinking about this question, I started singing, and I won't sing it, don't worry. <laughs> this old hymn that we used to sing growing up. Tell me the old, old story. Anybody know that? Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love. It was written by Catherine Hankey in 1866. And Catherine organized a lot of Sunday schools, real Sunday schools in London. And then she went with her brother to Africa, where she served as a missionary. Well, she wrote this hymn when she became seriously ill, and she was bedridden for a long, long time, and she didn't know whether she was going to live or die. And in those moments, this is what she craved, the old, old story. And so this hymn is part of a hundred-verse poem that she wrote in two parts called The Story Wanted and The Story Told. Here's the first verse. Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. See, this is what keeps the story fresh and new for each one of us when we remember who we are. When we remember and believe that we are weak and weary 
and helpless and defiled. When we remember that, the story will be fresh and exciting to us. When we forget that that's who we are, this story may become boring to us or at least irrelevant to our lives. You know, if we believe that we are strong and energetic, if we believe people that, that we're people that don't need any help, what do you mean defiled? Look how we put ourselves together so nicely and so beautifully. If we're all of those things, if we believe ourselves to be strong and independent and beautifully put together, then this story won't have any interest for us. But if you know that you are those things, weak and weary and helpless and defiled, then you'll say, tell me, Please, the old, old story. Tell me the story slowly, that I may take it in. That wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Tell me the story often, for I forget so soon, the early dew of morning has passed away at noon. See, this keeps the story fresh. What was your last sin? What was it? Don't say it out loud. When was it? When was it? For every new sin, and every new sin is usually just an old sin that we've repeated, though sometimes we're creative in our sinning and we take it to a new height. But for every new sin, Jesus is God's remedy. We forget quickly our need for that remedy every day and it flees from us as quickly as the morning dew. So, somebody tell me the old, old story. Tell me the story softly with earnest tones and grave. Remember, I'm the sinner who Jesus came to save. Tell me the story always, if you would really be, in any time of trouble, a comforter for me. This keeps the story fresh and new. What trouble or what turmoil do you have in your life? You know, if I was tempted to believe there's not trouble and turmoil in people's lives, just spending some extended time with extended family... (laughs) Over Thanksgiving, (laughs) reminded me, yes, (laughs) there's turmoil about. (laughs) But in these moments, the story is fresh because Jesus is our ever-present help. Last verse. Tell me the old, old story. When you have cause to fear that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear. And when the next world's glory is dawning on my soul, tell me the old, old story Christ Jesus makes the whole. See, the gospel story, the story of Jesus is the only one that can reorient our lives. It's the only story that can reorient our lives. Most of us are grasping after something. There's some glory we want from someone for something that we do. And sometimes the choices that we make to achieve that glory come at a very high price to us. So we stop and ask ourselves, what is the empty glory? What's the empty glory that we're seeking in this life? It's only the gospel, only the gospel that exposes the emptiness of it. And when it does, oh man, the gospel takes on a a freshness for which we are so grateful because it brings us to our senses It reorients us and reminds us of what is truly important and praiseworthy and glorious in our lives. And besides, the old, old story is going to be the theme of heaven. In the next world's glory, this is the song that we'll be singing. 
It will never lose its freshness there. So why should it lose its freshness here? If it isn't fresh, listen, if the gospel isn't fresh, even these verses, if they're not exciting, the problem isn't with the story. The problem is with our understanding of the person of Christ and our desperate need for him. I wonder how the church in general would be transformed if we would focus our attention on the person of Christ as Matthew does here. If we could grasp that our faith is in a person, that it's about a relationship with a person, a relationship that's to be fresh every day if we would see not just the gospel, but all of scripture, all of it, as a revelation of who he is. Our lives would change dramatically. Scripture is not primarily a moral code or rules and regulations. That's what the Jews made it into. And there was no life in it. By the time Jesus arrived in that stable, the Pharisees and the religious leaders had drained just about all the life out of worship and the joy out of living for God. And what was intended by God to be a a, a vibrant, living relationship between him and his people had become dead orthodoxy. It had become a drudgery and it had become a duty. There was no life in it. There was profit in it for the religious leaders. They had turned the temple, the house of God, the place of worship into a a flea market, into a, a tourist trap, literally, where they fleeced not only the sheep, But everyone who came through the doors of the temple, Jesus called it a den of thieves. And so no wonder Matthew's opening line would produce and spark such hope in people. Hope for something real. Hope for something different. Hope for something alive. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There's hope here in this verse for you and me. And these pages that tell us of uh, of a person who is mighty to save and to deliver and to help. So where is our hunger? Where's our hunger for more and more and more of the story that tells us more and more and more about Jesus? So we look at these verses, there's more reason for hope. The second reason for hope is because they proclaim the faithfulness of God. Look again in verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, so if Jesus is the son of Abraham, if Jesus is the son of David, what must that by necessity mean? By necessity it means that God is faithful. He keeps his promises. He kept his promise to Abraham. He told Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. He told Abraham, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So through Abraham came the seed, Jesus, the Christ. And through Christ the nations of the world are blessed. Why? Because God is faithful. He keeps his promises. Jesus is the son of David. This is what God promised to David in 2 Samuel. Chapter 7. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so through David came Christ. Why? Because God promised, and God's faithful. He's faithful to every promise he has ever made. Not one of them has been, or will be forgotten, or go unfulfilled. 
fulfilled. You and I need to hear that over and over again, that God is faithful. Because we don't experience that a lot in our human relationships. And you know as well as I do that when trust is broken in one of our human relationships, whether it's between husband and wife or between friends, it's very hard to reestablish that trust. And, and what, what does that do? It makes us people who are really insecure. Even if we don't admit it, it may be true that there is some level of insecurity in every relationship we have in our lives. We may say, oh, he would never do such a thing. She would never, never do such a thing. But inside we ask, would he? Would she? Maybe. I don't know. That's why the Lord is like no other person. That's why your relationship with the Lord is like no other relationship. That's why you and I should cherish the relationship we have with the Lord and cultivate it above all others. There's nothing else like it. God is a faithful, promise-keeping God. All His promises will be fulfilled, and that's the truth that should stir hope in our hearts because every hope you have depends on that truth. You and I have no hope if God is unfaithful or untrustworthy. Even just once, if He forgets even just one time. If He tells something that's not true just one time, there goes our security. Because might He do it again? When might He do it again? We don't know. But that's not who God is. He is faithful And this verse confirms the very first words of the very first book of the New Testament that God is faithful. What a brilliant way to begin telling the story of Jesus. His life, his coming, is a result of the promise-keeping faithfulness of God from all eternity past. Jesus entered into a covenant with God and he said, I will go there to earth and I will accomplish that mission. I will die on the cross. And so as the time approached for Jesus to do that, as the time came for him to wrap himself in human flesh, and not just human flesh, but the flesh of a baby, and come to earth, he didn't change his mind. He didn't get cold feet. He didn't back out the last minute and say, oh, you know what, I'd rather not leave all this and go down there and do all that. No, he didn't. Because he is faithful. He always will be. And that's where you and I find our hope and our security this morning. Because I'm not faithful. And you're not faithful. And our greatest need is for someone who is. Someone in whom we can put our trust. And that's who we have in Christ. Finally this morning, one more reason why these verses should fill us with hope. Not just because they're the story of Jesus, because they proclaim God's faithfulness, but also because they tell us of the grace of God. I had a great, great uncle. His name was Brian. And sometimes Brian struggled with reality. As an adult, he was visiting my grandparents as an adult. And he once took a, a bed sheet and he put it on his shoulders, cape style, and he climbed up on the roof of their garage. And he jumped off the roof. And guess what happened? Gravity happened. 
He fell off the roof and he broke his arm. I had another uncle back in the family tree that struggled with employment. He never wanted to find any. But he would regularly check one or all five of his children out of school to accompany him with his bottle into the mountains where they would dig for ginseng root. (laughs) True story. (laughs) Finally, another great uncle scandalized the family when he married the barmaid from the old honky-tonk who continued to dress like and wear her makeup like a barmaid from an old honky-tonk. Quite a scandal in the family. Listen, am I the only one here? (laughs) With a few crazies in the family? You know, there are skeletons in the family closet, and they won't stay in the closet. They keep coming out to embarrass us. And why do they embarrass us? Well, that DNA thing, you know, if they're like that, then maybe you are. You notice that the the stories I told were all of great or great, great. That's the closest I wanted to get to the present generation. But then we come to these verses, and they're really the, the, the family tree of Jesus. And so instead of being embarrassed by what we read there, we find great gratitude for what we read. Suddenly when we read the names that are listed here, and we know the life stories represented by those names, the sins of these people, the faithlessness associated with they, these names, we're thankful We're thankful for them, and we're thankful that we find them in the family tree of Jesus himself. By the grace of God, these people are in Jesus' family tree. And by the grace of God, there is room for us to be in the family tree of Jesus as well. Look look at some of the grace that we see in these verses. Look in verse 5. Verse 5 says, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. All right, you know Rahab. Rahab is mentioned eight times in Scripture. And six of the eight times, you know how she's referred to? Rahab the prostitute. Now, how would you like to have someone with that reputation in your family tree? Oh, yeah, I know him. Yeah, he's in that family with Rahab the prostitute. But God was at work in the life of this stained woman. When the spies of Israel went to the city of Jericho... And when their presence was discovered by the king, Rahab hid those spies to protect them. And then she lied about their presence to protect them. And then God poured out his grace on her so that she could make by faith this bold proclamation. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. And Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith, the prostitute Rahab welcomed the spies. A prostitute. Saved by the grace of God. That should give us hope. We read Rahab's name and Jesus' genealogy. Reminds me of what Jesus said. I tell you the truth, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God. That's God's grace. Look at the second part of verse 5. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Here's another story. Ruth was a Moabite. Not even part of God's chosen people, the Israelites. She descended from Moab, who was the son of Lot's daughter. 
You remember that story? Lot had to flee with his family from Sodom and Gomorrah because it was such an evil place and, and God destroyed it. But with their city destroyed and, and them in hiding, this daughter of Lot said to her sister, look, we will never get married here and we will never become mothers in this situation. And so they concocted a plan to get their father drunk, Lot their father drunk, so that they could have sexual relations with him and become pregnant. And that's what happened. And Moab was the result of that incestuous relationship. The Moabites went on to worship the god Chemosh, who was pacified by human sacrifice. And so they would sacrifice their children to this god. These are the Moabites. God said specifically, do not mix with the Moabites and do not worship with them. These are Ruth's people. She's a Moabite. Ruth is a Moabite. So what hope does Ruth have? Ruth is also a widow, a very young widow with no one to take care of her. So what hope did Ruth have? She had hope in the grace of God. Ruth is rescued from this life by Boaz, who acts as her kinsman, redeemer. He has the right to redeem her, and so he does. He buys her for himself. He takes her as his wife, and he cares for her, and she's brought into the family of God. Here's a picture of the grace of God. It's a picture of what Jesus does for us. He acts as our kinsman, redeemer. He pays the price to buy us, to purchase us. And that price was his own life on the cross. 1 Peter 2.10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Just like Ruth, the Moabite. Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one. In Christ Jesus. All kinds of people. All kinds of people. From all kinds of places. Experience the grace of God. One more example. Look in verse 6. Jesse is the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Uriah's wife. Who is she? You know who she is. Bathsheba. Well, why isn't Bathsheba just called by name here? Why well, refer to her as Uriah's wife? Probably to draw attention, the attention of the reader to her great sin and her great need of God's grace. Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah, but she wasn't faithful to him. She had an affair with King David. And what about David? Scripture says of David that he was a man after God's own heart. But what did he do? He saw Bathsheba, he wanted Bathsheba, he sent for Bathsheba, he brought her into his room, he slept with her, she became pregnant. And to cover up that sin, what did David have to do? He had to put her husband on the front line of the battle where he would be killed. All these people in Jesus' family tree. We could keep looking at this list. As you heard, there are quite a few names. We could look at the lives of the vilest sinners, the most faithless ones contained here. We could look at the sin and the faithlessness of the most faithful of the names listed here. And we would arrive at the same conclusion. Sinful people need the grace of God. 
Sinful people need the grace of God. The good news is, sinful people receive the grace of God. And so from the very first verse in the New Testament, we see that the story of Jesus, this will be a story of grace. A story of pity and pardon for prostitutes like Rahab and adulteresses like Bathsheba. It's going to be the story of a person whose heart and arms are open to welcome all those who are afar off and have no hope, like Ruth. It's going to be a story of grace for those who strive to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength like David did, and yet who fail miserably. And in their failure, there is the grace of God. And not only does he pour out his grace upon these people, not only does he forgive them, then he uses these people for his glory and for his own good purpose. If that doesn't fill you with hope this morning, I don't know what will. Because we can all find our place in the lives of these people listed here in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. We all need the grace of God. When we call out in faith, we receive the grace of God through Christ. He forgives us. He uses us for his purpose and for his glory. God's grace is truly an amazing thing. It truly is greater than all our sins. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the hope that we have now this morning. We come to these verses, man, and and what they remind us of, they remind us of your faithfulness throughout the generations, throughout the years, even 400 years of silence, Lord. You didn't forget. You can never forget. You fulfilled your promise. You will always fulfill your promises because you are a faithful God. Father, I pray that you would turn all of our hearts here this morning toward you. Truly as the only one who is completely faithful and dependable in our lives. Lord, we we put that weight on other people. And they fail us and they disappoint us as we fail and disappoint them. It's because we are putting our hope in the wrong place, Lord. We need to put our hope in you. As the only faithful one. We thank you for your unchanging faithfulness to us. We can trust you, Lord, with all things at all times in our lives. Father, we thank you for your grace that's displayed in these verses. The lives of these people, real people, who who walked on the same earth upon which we now walk, who sinned as we sinned. They're not just stories. They're not just fables of made-up people from the past. Real people with real emotions, making real mistakes. Lord, there was your grace in their lives, miraculously, to cleanse, pardon, forgive, reclaim, redeem, include in your family. So, Father, we thank you for that grace that's available to us as well. You do for us right now what you did 
for them. And we thank you and we praise you for that. We are people who need grace. We are people who receive it. So we thank you and praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.